BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, let's see here. There is so much news. There is so much going on. Uh, We're going to have a fascinating day today. Uh, We're going to hear from the uh, incoming president of the National Organization for Black Law Enforcement, and we're going to hear from Congressman Joe Crowley. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, He's the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. And uh, but in this first hour, there's just a whole bunch of things. Uh, first of all, Scaramucci. Uh, Scaramucci. Uh, is he getting too much PR for Trump? I mean, he tweeted this thing about, oh, my God, my financial information is out there and I'm going, you know, and, and rents and uh, I'm going to turn this over to the FBI. Well, it turns out that it's publicly available. Anybody can get his financial information. And uh, he's in the process right now of trying to sell his hedge fund to a Chinese bank for $90 million. And if there's this cool little loophole in the wall, in the law, where if you sell your company and then go to work in the White House, you don't pay taxes on the money, essentially. So the mooch is trying really hard to do this deal. And frankly, I, you know, if I owned a hedge fund right now at this point with the stock market, at this point with the economy, you know, we're, we're getting higher and higher and higher on the, you know, closer and closer and closer to the edge of the ledge. I'd be selling it, too. But, you know, the question is the mooch getting too much publicity for Trump. I, you've got Republicans in the Senate saying, uh, you know, this administration is out of control. Well, mooch isn't even part of the administration yet. He can't go to work until he sells his company. That's presumably going to be in the middle of August. But, you know, is he getting too much PR for Trump? Trump, you know, took down Spicer, basically, because he was getting, you know, he was becoming more famous than Trump. Trump doesn't like that. This this guy is a, you know, a little fingered sociopath who who does not, a narcissist who does not like the, the, the focus of television attention to be anywhere other than on himself. So number one. Number two, it looks like the Republicans are going to vote on a skinny repeal of Obamacare today that uh, repeals the individual mandate or repeals the employer mandate. So your employer just might nuke your health insurance if you think that you've got a health insurance through your employer and therefore you're protected if you work for a company that has more than 50 employees. Good luck. It would repeal the medical device tax. In other words, the lobbyists have been whispering in the ears of the Republicans. It would defund Planned Parenthood, leaving millions of American women with you know, few or untenable options for gynecological and other, you know, and and other health issues. It would repeal the Prevention and Public Health Fund. So we're no longer, we're no longer protected against infectious diseases, uh, whether they're just like naturally occurring things, you know, measles epidemics, or whether they're, hey, somebody brought some uh, anthrax into the United States and spread it all over, fill in the blank. And it would repeal the Community Health Center Fund. This is the fund that, uh, I believe, it's the fund that pays for things like the 10,000 community health centers around the United States that Bernie Sanders got put into Obamacare. That's pretty awful stuff. And they're calling it a skinny repeal, like that's desirable. You ever walk into a bar and order a skinny margarita or a skinny gin and tonic? I, I would think that they would think that you mean less alcohol, right? Like, not as much. And who wants that? 
I suppose, you know, some people are teetotalers or close to it, but with regard to health care, who wants skinny health care? It's not a good thing. I, I realize in our culture we're supposed to believe that skinny is good, but this, you know, obviously there are exceptions to that. But anyhow, the uh, U.S., the top U.S., so, so there's that. Then yesterday, Trump tweeted out that, you know, he's, he hates transgendered people, basically. And uh, I, I don't know if he realized or not that somewhere between 10 and 20,000 transgender people are currently serving active duty in the military. Um, you know, but one of them is an acquaintance of mine who's been over 20 years in the Air Force. And uh, this is, this is mind-boggling. So two, two things to this story, two pieces to this story. The first is the, you know, Trump announced this with three tweets. And the first tweet basically said, I, you know, I've been talking to my generals and I'm going to do something. And then the second tweet, the, what he was going to do, took nine minutes. And apparently, from several news reports from several different sources, over at the Pentagon, the, 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 the big cheeses were totally freaked out because Trump had not discussed this with them in advance. And they didn't know what was coming in that second tweet. The, the big fear was that he was going to say, I, you know, in his first tweet, I've talked to my generals. His second tweet was going to be, and we're nuking North Korea in five minutes. They had no idea. Now that they know what it is, uh, Joseph Dunford, Dunford, the uh, general who is the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, sent out a written letter, a written message on Thursday to all military leaders, all branches of the service, saying, and I quote, there will be no modifications to the current, this would be the current policy around transgender people, there will be no modifications to the current policy until the president's direction has been received by the secretary of defense and the secretary has issued implementation guideline, guidance. In other words, number one, Trump never told us. Number two, he still hasn't told us the formal way that he's supposed to tell us by notifying us, you know, formally. And number three, we're the ones who decide how and even if this gets put into, into, into effect. And then he ends this with a, uh, a kick in the ass to Trump. He says, in the meantime, we will continue to treat all of our personnel with respect. As importantly, given the current fight and the challenges we face, we will remain focused on accomplishing our assigned missions. Well, there was, uh, in my opinion, in other words, Trump, stop dragging us into your petty and bizarre political fights. Now, meanwhile, the Department of Justice under Jeff Sessions has now come out and said, you know, we're not sure that gay people are protected by civil rights laws. Let that sink in. These guys are committed to, to rolling us, to taking the United States back to this, you know, make America great again, right? I mean, that was also Ronald Reagan's campaign slogan. Reagan took us halfway back to, to 1929. Trump is trying to take us the other half of the way. This is nuts. And then uh, Lisa Murkowski was one of the uh, two senators, she and Susan Collins, who voted against Trump's, um, you know, throw, th th throw 32 million people off their health care bill. And so, so uh, you know, this is a, a report in the Alaska Dispatch News says that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, uh, this is a, a report by Alan Rupar over at uh, thinkprogress.org. According to a report in Alaska Dispatch News, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, now we were talking about him yesterday, the guy who, who you know, rode to work on a horse, who's traveling, you know, the, the Western lands, uh, you know, with his Western outfit and his boots and the whole bit, you know, the cowboy hat and, and talking with a drawl and everything. He's suddenly become, you know, a, a, a cowboy when his bureaucrats back here in Washington, D.C. are busily working to sell off public lands and give billionaires and and oil and mineral developers, everything they want, and screw the American public. Anyhow, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke called Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, who is the junior senator from Alaska, and said that Murkowski's vote, quote, this is what, this is what Zinke, who's in Trump's cabinet, this is what Zinke said to, to uh, Dan Sullivan, 
He said, uh, you know, Murkowski's vote has put Alaska's future with this administration in jeopardy. Really? Sullivan told the Dispatch News the Zinke's Wednesday call was troubling. Sullivan said, I'm not going to go into the details, but I fear that the strong economic growth, pro-energy, pro-mining, pro-jobs, and personnel from Alaska who are part of those policies are going to stop. I tried to push back on behalf of all Alaskans. We're facing some difficult times, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for the policies that President Z- Secretary Zinke and the president have been talking about with regard to our economy, but the message was pretty clear. This is, this is government by mafia. This, this illegitimate president, this national vote loser, is acting like a mob boss. Hey, you wouldn't want anything to happen. You know, nice state you got there, Lisa. Wouldn't want anything to happen to it. A lot of nice uh, women and children there in Alaska, Lisa. Wouldn't want anybody to get kneecapped. Right. This is, uh, you know, bizarre is not even a strong enough word for this. It's not even close. Meanwhile, Sam Brownback, the guy who screwed up Kansas, totally screwed up Kansas, right, with Reaganomics. He's so unpopular, he couldn't get elected dog catcher in Kansas. So Trump is making him our religious ambassador to the world. What? The United States has a religious ambassador? This is bizarre, too. But anyhow, it's Anything Goes Summer, whatever you'd like to talk about. Give us a shout. 202-808-9925. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. So just, uh, you know, going through some of the, the stories of the day, it just boggles my mind how much this... Sam Brown, this is uh, Mitch Smith and J.C. Fortin in today's New York Times. Sam Brownback, the beleaguered government, governor of Kansas, who ag- who's aggressively conservative fiscal policies turned some fellow Republicans against him, I would say, whose aggressively conservative fiscal policies destroyed his state, will be nominated to serve as ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Mr. Brownback, 60, represented his home state in Congress before being elected to two terms as governor beginning in 2011. Right. This guy couldn't get elected dog catcher, so they threw him a bone. Amazing. That's amazing. Okay. Apropos of Trump going after trans people yesterday, in order to satisfy a couple of crazy right wingers in the U.S. House of Representatives, one of them in particular, I retweeted her her gibberish yesterday. Uh, You can check it out. Um, They were saying, basically, we're not going to give you funding in this House Appropriations Bill for your much beloved Mexican wall unless you cut funding, this two two to eight million dollars a year in funding for, for, you know, medical support for trans people in the military. Now, keep in mind, this is the same military that spends 80 million dollars a year on erectile enhancement products like Viagra. 80 million a year between two and eight million a year for trans people. Just to put this in in context, I just want to read a poem. This is an old poem. I'm sure most of you will recognize it. It's over on the website of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. It's by Pastor Martin Niemöller. He wrote this just after he was taken off to a concentration camp in the 1930s. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I, sp- and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. An attack on trans people is an attack on all of us. We are all human beings here in this country. And for Trump to to attack trans people just so he could get funding for his wall in a cynical political ploy is pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. And then you've got Trump threatening Murkowski. 
You got uh, Jeff Sessions saying uh, that uh, gay people are not protected under discrimin from discrimination under federal law. Now, keep in mind, trans people and gay people are uh, different things. Trans has to do with gender identity. Gay has to do with sexual preference. They're different things, but, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, different than the, quote, norm. So Donald Trump feels free to go after these people. And then, you know, Scaramucci, oh, this is just pathetic. There's an interesting piece over at BuzzFeed News by Adrian Carasquillo. Pronouncing it right in Washington, D.C. And uh, Adrian, the headline is Trump actually likes making people's lives living hell, as Sessions is finding out. Trump, famous for firing people on TV, doesn't relish doing so in real life. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a peculiar skill set, a particular skill set to get them to resign. And Trump, in, in one of his uh, ghostwritten books, it's called The, the Trump, uh, The Apprentice. Oh, I, I'm sorry, it's not The Apprentice. It's The uh, uh, whatever it is. Anyhow, in one of his books, he talks about how, uh, how difficult it is to fire people. He doesn't like firing people. Um, so what he does is he shames them and humiliates them and berates them, and eventually they quit. There's a whole book, you know, literally, not an a book, an, an entire article about this over at BuzzFlash News. That is fascinating. Trump in his book, Way to the Top, is his 2004 book. He says, I don't like firing people. It's not a pleasant thing. Right. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And just, I, I just want to come back to this for just a minute, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. But the, if you go back to 1787, the Constitutional Convention met in, in Philadelphia and came up with a constitution through August, September, October of 1787, through the, the, the summer and early fall. And then began the process of trying to sell this thing, which is what the Federalist Papers were all about over the next year and a half. Uh, it wasn't ratified until two years later, 1789, which is when we officially became a country or a new country, a, a, you know, a federal republic. Uh, we had been a country operating under the Articles of Confederation before that, but arguably we really weren't a country. There were 13 countries with a trade agreement. That was the Articles of Confederation. So anyhow, J James Madison had been shepherding the Constitution through, and he's very proud of it, and justifiably so. I mean, he spent years, five years, actually, studying constitutions historically, all the way back to ancient Greece, right? Studying constitutions, looking at the, Shosh at the, at the uh, not the Shoshone, at the uh, Iroquois Confederacy among other things. So he sends a copy of it to Jefferson. He says, what do you think? And Jefferson says, you know, here's, you know, I like this and this and this, but here's what I don't like. And one of the things that Jefferson suggested, and this led to a conversation, you can read their letters online, I'm sure, um, between Jefferson and Madison was the danger of religion. Jefferson wanted, not only was there already in the Constitution an explicit ban on religious tests, but he wanted freedom of religion and the press to be attached to the Constitution as a separate Bill of Rights. Madison thought it was unnecessary. In fact, he was worried about a separate Bill of Rights because he thought that might cause people to think these are all the only rights you have. And Jefferson said, no, you've got to say this out loud. No religious test. And then Jefferson goes off on this thing about how the people of America will never be stupid enough to elect somebody who is you know, a priest, uh, you know, a religious person, a person who puts religion ahead of other things in their lives. And Madison said, well, that, you know, that doesn't scare me as much as the federal government starting to give money to churches. You know, should we ever start supporting individual churches in this country? We're going to corrupt the churches with our money. So Jefferson was afraid about religious people having political power, Mike Pence, hint, hint. And Madison was afraid about the federal government giving money to churches, which we do every day. You know, George Herbert Walker Bush started this thousand points of light thing. And, you know, all this, let's, let's, let's just pass out money to churches. And we're doing that. And now church schools, Betsy DeVos is expanding that. So this country was literally founded on the idea that we don't do religion in the United States. 
Religion can be done in the United States, but we the people, we the government, we don't do religion. And now Donald Trump is appointing loser Sam Brownback, the guy who destroyed Kansas with his Reaganomics experiment. He's going to appoint him religious ambassador. Our, our, our founders and framers are rolling over in their graves, I'll, I'll tell you. And, and frankly, probably many of the people who fought and died for this nation in the 240 years since then. It's incredible. Robin, listening on Sirius XM in Xenia, Ohio. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? Oh, not much. I just wanted to correct you on your use of pronouns back when you said sexual preference. Um, it's actually not a preference, it's an orientation. When you say preference, Thank you. it implies... I got it. When you say preference, it implies that, hey, it's a choice. And it's right. not a choice. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So I just wanted to correct you on that and tell you what a great job you're doing. Thank you, Robin. I appreciate that. You know, a lot has changed in my lifetime, and it <laughs> sometimes it takes a while for me to keep up with the language. I appreciate that uh, correction. Thank you, Robin. Dave, uh, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Yeah. I wanted to get your take on something Scaramucci said about Trump. But, um, you know, I just want to ask you, because you were really, really good, in my opinion, at connecting the uh, military and corporate interest in foreign affairs. Scaramucci said uh, during, you know, because he was responding to tweets, all right? So it was off topic a little bit, all right? But he, this is the comment he made. He said at, at the dinner party that Trump hosted that Trump talked about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and he said the uh, director of the CIA got it, um, you know, I'm not sure who he was referring to, maybe Tenet. He said the director of the CIA was a good person, but he got it wrong. Now, is that not creepy, the president of the United States, all these years later, still trying to talk about weapons of mass destruction in a virtually obliterated uh, country with, no, with really no economic abilities whatsoever? Yeah, well, you, you have to keep in mind, Donald Trump's principal news source is Fox so-called news. And Fox, there are, there are personalities on Fox today who are still promoting the idea that there actually were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and they all just got smuggled over to Syria before we showed up. So, uh, you know, that, that lie is not going to die easily as long as it's attached to George W. Bush's legacy and thus the legacy of the Republican Party. So I'm guessing that Trump, just like, you know, four days ago, Fox and Friends, uh, or uh, yeah, I believe it was Fox and Friends. It was one of the shows. No, no, it was Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson did a show on how, how, how peop trans people are also child molesters. And, uh, you know, he had a guest on saying this stuff. And, you know, four days later, Trump is like bartering away the lives of trans people in exchange for money for his wall in Mexico. Uh, it, this is the most, in my mind, Dave, the most dangerous part of this Trump presidency is the fact that this president gets his information from a news source that we know from university studies when people watch Fox News as their exclusive source of news, they are more malinformed, more misinformed, and more uninformed. They know less about important things, and they know a lot of things that aren't true. They believe them to be true. They believe that they know them than people who watch no news whatsoever. And certainly they're, they're more poorly informed than people who get their news from the corporate media or from NPR or from any other source. Fox is the worst source for information in the United States, demonstrably. And this is where this guy, this is where Donald Trump is getting his news. And so, gee, what a surprise. He thinks that, uh, you know, Tenet probably just got it wrong. Tenet didn't get it wrong. Dick Cheney walked that, those lies over to Tenet and other people in the CIA and said, you will say this. And, and that's pretty much a matter of public record now. So, you know, Dave, interesting question. Thank you very much. Uh, Linwood, uh, whoop, somehow my, my uh, Linwood call back. I'm sorry, my, my uh, call screening software here just jumped right over you. Uh, Brian in Indianapolis. Hey, Brian, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Hi, Brian. Uh, hi, Tom. This is Brian from Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. uh, Long-time listener. I started listening to you when I lived in Maryland. Uh, many years ago, uh, proud Hoosier progressive. And I really think a lot of times here in the Midwest, um, a lot of us progressives were forgotten about. Uh, there are a lot of progressives in, in, uh, in, the, in the Midwest. Absolutely. I grew and up I'm in Michigan and, I'm and I still, you know, my tense land. And yeah. there are very few people that know about this man and 
how dangerous he is more than, than Hoosier progressives like me. Um, we all know he pushed the, uh, the, uh, the so-called Religious Freedom Act here in Indiana, which basically destroyed our state's tourism economy, um, gave Indiana a very bad image, a very bad image of being an intolerant state. And quite frankly, he um, decided to run with Trump because he was going to lose here in Indiana. Oh, yeah. He was down like 30 percent popularity. I mean, it was absolutely totally in the crapper. Totally. But the reason why I'm calling today, Tom, is that I really want Democrats to really start running more aggressive, muscular campaigns. It just seems like, and I'm a, I'm a young guy, I'm not even in my 50s, but it seems like Democrats in the past were a lot tougher. It was just whether it was Truman or the Kennedys or Johnson, they just ran more muscular campaigns against Republicans. And they put Republicans on, on, on their, uh, their heels. They, they played hardball. It just seems like Democrats, we just don't run tough campaigns against these Republicans anymore. And I think the way for us to do that is, and I agree with you about single payer, but I think we need to run a very patriotic campaign where we say, hey, we, we're going to take our country back from, from the Russian influence that our current occupant of the White House is truly under. There's no doubt about it. He's truly under the influence of the Russians. I think if we ran a campaign like that, along with pushing economic populism like single payer, I like our chances in 2018 and definitely taking the White House back in 2020. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, step by step. I mean, if, if you can demonstrate any specific policies that Trump is promoting as a result of Russian influence, go after them. I don't know of any. Do you? Well, I mean, look at the fact that he's uh, well, let's see what happens with the uh, with the, uh, the the bill that's been passed by Congress. Um, oh, the, the, yeah, the, the, the sanctions. But that's you know, that's. That's not him screwing us on behalf of another country. I'm not saying that, that you know, if, if, if I, I'm not saying this is not a thing and I'm not saying that it's not something we should be very concerned about. We should be very upset about. And and there needs to be. And I've been saying this from day one, that there needs to be an independent and nonpartisan commission that looks into what's going on, uh, that looks into Russian interference in our election, that looks into uh, Russian oligarch or government involvement with Donald Trump, all of that. But to the point of Democrats winning elections again. The difference between Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, the muscular Democrats that you're talking about, and the Democratic Party of today, in my opinion, has nothing to do with Russia. It has to do with the fact that back then, Democrats were united around a set of core values that had to do with the labor movement, that had to do with building a middle class, that had to do with pushing back against oligarchy, you know, FDR famously saying they hate me and and I welcome their hatred, hatred. calling right. them out by name. Harry Truman used to do that. Lyndon Johnson used to do that. Um, going after these guys. I mean, the way that LBJ went after Barry Goldwater, Goldwater ended up winning what, two states, something like that. I mean, he, he, they were able to do that. And, and then, you know, the corporate influence came into the Democratic Party in a really big way in the late 80s and early 90s. And that and, and it diluted that the ability of the Democratic Party to say we're here to fight against the corporations and the billionaires on your behalf because they were then taking money from the corporations and the billionaires. And right. that's the, the existential crisis that the Democratic Party faces right now is in a post-Citizens United world, in this day and age, in this you know post-Buckley versus Vallejo 1976, Citizens United 2010, in this world where, where basically money reigns, you know, money rules that, that uh, particularly if you're from a large state, there's no way you can win an election without a lot of cash. In that world, how does the Democratic Party survive without the labor unions? You know, back when Reagan came into office and a third of America was members of a union, the unions had incredible power. They were the major supporters of the Democratic Party and the major funders of the Democratic Party. And that's why Republicans have tried to destroy the post office. It's the largest unionized employer in the United States. It's why it's why they started. Uh, the very first thing Ronald Reagan did was his war on labor unions. He went he went after uh, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association. He went after Patco, and and he's been successful. We're now down to six percent uh, in the private sector of employment, you know, of, of unionization from thirty percent or more back in 1980. So that money source for Democrats has been wiped out. And the unions that are left are, you know, frantically just trying to hold on, you know, trying to stay above water. That's been wiped out. So this is the crisis the Democrats are facing. I don't have an easy answer for them. 
and, uh, you know, other than really going after money and politics. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And on the line with us, Congressman Joe Crowley, representing, brilliantly representing the 14th District of New York and chair, most importantly, of the House Democratic Caucus, although I'm, I'm guessing your constituents in New York I would say secondarily, importantly. Congressman Crowley, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be back with you. It has been a while, but uh, always always glad to be back with you. Yeah, back at you. Uh, by the way, for people who want to uh, learn more about you and the work you're doing, Crowley, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y dot house dot gov is your website. And you can you can tweet uh, Congressman Crowley at Rep. Joe Crowley or at House Democrats. And, uh, you no, that's know, if, a PSA. If, Say that again. That's a PSA. PSA. OK, there you go. And uh, uh, any of our, uh, you know, if you've uh, I understand, Congressman, you can stay with us for the half hour. Yeah, I think they told me 20 minutes, but a half hour is fine by me as long as they don't call votes on me. OK, well, well we can we can. Uh, yeah, that's, that's sure. uh, great. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll we, we will insert a, a small break in there, but it'll be about actually it'll be. 20 minutes from now, 20, 25 minutes, Great. Uh, when we hit the break at the bottom of the hour, the hard break at the bottom of the hour, there is a soft break in the middle. Um, but if anybody has a specific question for the guy who is the uh, chair of the House Democratic Caucus, you know, we can we can put you on. Yep. So I have a question for you. Yeah. You know, first of all, you know, feel free to pontificate on whatever's at the top of your mind right now. If there's something that you think is really important that our listeners need to know about. But also, um, I'm curious wh- what you see as the direction of the Democratic Party. We had some callers in the last hour talking about, you know, how should the Democratic Party position itself and how should it take on Trump? And I'm just wondering what your what the what the contemporary thinking is on. All this. Well, I think the contemporary thinking is that we just can't be the party against Trump. That, that's clear, uh, although he's doing a pretty good job himself of mucking things up, as we say. Um, I think we have to stand for something. And I think Democrats always have, quite frankly. I think we just we didn't do a good enough job of communicating who we are, what we stand for in the last election for a myriad of reasons. And I think uh, Trump was able to, to capitalize that in his marketing way as, as a TV personality and, uh, you know, kind of connect in some way. The reality is that uh, his connecting during the, the election has no relevance to how he's governing. And um, he's not delivering at all for the people that he said he was fighting for. You know, it's interesting to see what happened yesterday in terms of uh, the, uh, the the ban on, on transgender. You know, when he had said during the campaign and the tweets that had gone out that, you know, I'll stand for the LGBT community, you know, forgetting that T stands for transgender, obviously, and, you know, to take the hateful uh, steps he took yesterday to ban uh, these individuals uh, from serving in our nation's military is just another indication of he says one thing to get elected and then does something completely different. Once elected, now some folks would say that's the way politicians act, um, but you know there are just certain things you, you just don't do, and these are people's real lives that we're talking about. So that's an example of it. But I do think that Democrats have stood for uh, the working man, for uh, for unions, for, uh, for for those who are struggling to make ends meet, uh, and, and and for all of us to succeed and do better in America, and not just the wealthiest, you know, one uh, percent. Yeah, I, I I I totally agree, and I'm I'm really looking forward as time goes on, as this whole uh, you know better deal gets rolled out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to to seeing the details of it. Yep. Um, uh, has a question for you. He's yep. calling, or she, I'm not sure, uh, calling from Seattle, Washington. Kayam, you're on the air with Congressman Joe Joe Crowley. Uh, hi. 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 Gee. Hi, my name is Kion, and, you know, I'm only 10, ah. but, and I'm one of the most political 10-year-olds that my <laughs> people say they've ever met, but and I think that transgender people are, the only difference they have from other people is the difference that people have from each other. You either think of yourself as a man or you think of yourself as a woman, and if you, and the way that you think about yourself is the way that you are. <laughs> so... I'm just wondering, what are you going to do to stop this horrible thing? What I don't know what to call it from from continuing because transgender people, like I said, they're just they're people. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. What Kyle. district? What district do you live in? Um, who's your congressperson? I'm not sure. Not sure. Uh, my senator is Reuven Carlisle. Wow. Well, I have to tell you something. You're, you're, you're 15 years away from being eligible to run for Congress. 
But someday I hope you run for Congress because we, we need young people like you with that kind of acumen and caring about uh, their fellow, uh, metal, fellow man, and that includes man and woman. And that includes trans, transgender. And that's why I think, you know, from the, from the words, from the mouths of babes, as the, as the adage goes, you know, babe, when it comes to your, your political acumen. And um, I couldn't agree more with you. And I think you hit the nail on the head. This is about human beings. This is about individuals uh, who have taken an oath uh, to protect their country from all enemies, foreign and domestic, uh, that they will obey uh, the military code of honor, uh, that they will take that hill if commanded to do so by the superior officer. Um, you know, it's the test that needs to be met is to whether or not you have the ability to serve in our military, whether you have the physical and mental uh, capability of doing that. And those are, those are rigor, rigorous standards that are set up by the military to do that, and they ought to be. But regardless of whether you're straight or gay or you're a transgender person, uh, you ought to be able to contribute to the protection of this great nation. And what the president did yesterday, in my opinion, is unforgivable. It's hateful. Uh, it was done to distract from, uh, I think, the tension that is taking place in the White House today uh, on multiple levels. It was to distract from the Russia investigation. It was to distract from the, their inability to get anything accomplished here in Washington, D.C. So, um, you know, we need more people like you thinking that way. And I think you're a great, great indicator of the youth of America. They see right through uh, this president, this individual, uh, they know what he's made of. And nine times out of 10, uh, they reject him. So I appreciate the, that, that call. It was wonderful. And, and if Trump did this to, to get, and there, there are some news reports that he did this just to get some votes out of the House for, his, uh, for funding for his wall in Mexico, yeah. that makes it uh, even doubly heinous. Cynical uh, and heinous and, 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 and even more unforgivable. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Dan in Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming, listening on Sirius XM, you are on the air with Congressman Joe Crowley, the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. Hello, Congressman. Hey, Tom. Good to talk hey, to Dan. you guys. Wondering what the uh, Democratic Party is thinking about as far as getting rid of the Electoral College and political district gerrymandering, uh, considering how the vote went last time. It was so close and just a change of what, about 10,000 votes, Wisconsin, Michigan, would have taken it the other way in Florida too. And yeah. yeah, but I'll take, I'll take my answer off here. Just want to hear what your opinion is on those two uh, issues. Thanks. I appreciate that. And, uh, uh, interestingly enough, my, my wife, Casey, uh, her family comes from Montana right next door. They originally homestead in Wyoming, uh, back in the, uh, late 1800s. So, uh, I've been out there a great part of the country and I really, a boy from Queens, um, takes his way out to uh, the, the West and, uh, and I love it. That's great. Uh, and uh, what I would say is that I, I do think that there, more, there are more and more people looking at whether or not the, uh, the structure of the Electoral College is arcane or not, uh, whether or not it's truly representative of uh, representative democracy. Um, you know, I, I think you know, live by the sword, die by the sword to some degree as well, although it looks like Democrats have been dying by the sword more often than not when it comes to this. We look at the election of 2000, certainly we look at the election of, of, of uh, uh, 2016 and okay. the pain that was caused by that. Uh, the, the, this really is um, uh, has been generally an, an issue of states' rights and their uh, the relegation in terms of, of gerrymandering or or redistricting. Um, the likelihood that that will change is is pretty nil. But I do think that there may be a, a more uniform way in which which it could be uh, we we could cajole those states to uh, to conform uh, to one that is more representative of 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 of, of interests of that district that you know, go beyond politics that really uh, reflect uh, the, the cities or the towns uh, and that populace. I think what has happened, uh, especially uh, prior to the last reapportionment, is that my Republican uh, colleagues in their party invested a tremendous amount of money uh, in winning uh, local uh, state legislative seats. And that had an impact on reapportionment and gerrymandering, quite frankly, as Dan put it, that put us at a, at a disadvantage. We do see the Supreme Court has taken some positive steps, certainly in Carolina and in, uh, in Texas and Florida. And uh, that is having an impact in terms of uh, our ability uh, to, to win some of those seats that were gerrymandered against us. So I think the book is still out on that. That's something we need to continue to work on. Good thing. Congressman Crawley, hang on just a second. We've got to take a real quick break here. 
Uh, we're talking with Congressman Joe Crowley of New York. So, Congressman Crowley, you're still with us? Yes, I am. Great. We Our commercial stations are in break right now in SiriusXM, but our non-commercial stations and Free Speech TV are still live with us. Great. So we have about half our audience right now. When we come back in four minutes from the commercial break, sure. I'll recap whatever you had to say to the folks listening on our commercial stations. But right now, John in Minneapolis, Minnesota is watching us on Free Speech TV, and he has a question for you. John, you're on the air with Congressman Crowley. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make this really brief. You know, um, there, there's already forces within the Democratic Party and, you know, the center Democratic Party or, you know, what the Democratic Party was, you know, critiquing our revolution. Now, I didn't pick the terminology. I'm a little uncomfortable with calling it our revolution, but that's what they chose. But really, it's an our revolution. It's a revolution to get back to the roots of the Democratic Party, the New Deal, and all of the things that went along with it. Um, you know, we've just moved so far to the right. And so I, I just find this really, you know, kind of unfortunate. And I'd like to know what the Democratic Party uh, is going to do to, re, to recapture what they were, because uh, there's still a lot of people in the Democratic Party that uh, absolutely hated uh, Bernie Sanders. And I worked in the Bernie Sanders campaign here, and I can tell you when I went through the door, and I'm very perceptive of that, you know, they did not want us there, not one bit, and we've made a lot of progress, but already we're getting a backlash in the, in the form of opinion uh, pieces in the Star Tribune, which is probably, as most newspapers are, very conservative anyway. So I just wanted to know what, what we're going to do with that, because, you know, the Democratic Party here in this state has traded its reputation on some of the most liberal persons in Congress, Wellstone, Eugene McCarthy, uh, you know, amongst others, Walter Mondale, although he is a little bit more, you know, middle of the road, um, you know, just and Hubert Humphrey. I mean, you know, that, so, uh, John, we've, we've got about a minute and a half left before we hit our break. So let's let Congressman Crowley answer your question. Okay? Well, I thank John for the thank question. You, and I, 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 I've served for many years with Bernie Sanders in the House of Representatives, had a great relationship and friendship with him. And that continues today. Uh, you know, to say that Democrat, I don't think Democrats hate uh, Bernie Sanders. I think that uh, we looked at what Bernie did, and I think uh, many respects helped uh, to to focus on the issues that we care about as a country, and uh, you know some of that was was accepted, and some of it may have been uh, somewhat rejected in terms of the electorate. Uh, but we look at his contribution in terms of the election and say overall very positive uh, inv involvement. But you know the state of Minnesota has been a bastion of, of progressivity uh, for the United States. I think uh, you know John is right, um, and I think that still exists uh, today. I think you have you know uh, Tim Walls and I. I think you have uh, uh, Rick Nolan, uh, two folks that come to mind, um, who are very progressive people, who are who are really outspoken in our Democratic caucus as well, and talk about the values of working men and women. Uh, I, I know that uh, that Rick runs uh, on the Democratic and, and Labor uh, party line in that state. So, um, you know, I think we've always held these positions. We may not have articulated them as well as we ought to have, and I think that's what happens sometimes in these elections that. Um, it, 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 people say, say we go to right, we go to left. I think in the end, what, what, what Democrats have to do is that we have the message capability, we have to deliver the message, and that's what we're going to be about in the 2018 and 2020 cycles. Great news. We will rejoin our commercial stations in just a second. Congressman Joe Crowley with us, taking your calls for the half hour. Uh, the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, Crowley.House.gov. You can tweet him at rep, R-E-P, Joe, J-O-E, Crowley, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y. Welcome back. Congressman Joe Crowley taking your calls. Lori in Temple, Texas. Hey, Lori, thanks for uh, watching us on Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Congressman Crowley. Thank you for taking my phone call. Um, um, my concern is about the future of the Democratic Party and your specific goals to reach the middle class. Um, I grew up in a rural county. The... Um, the driving force in that county was Alcoa. Alcoa has now left the county. Mm -hmm. And um, so our major employers now is the agriculture and the county government and medical. Right, right. So we have no economic base to sustain our schools. 
to uh, pay for all the other infrastructure we right. need in that county. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do for the rural counties in America that need a good company to come in to do sustainable employment for these people? Well, thank you, Lori. I thank you for the question. And, uh, you know, Lori, before I answer that, Tom, let me also mention, I failed to mention Betty McCollum from Minnesota, as well as, obviously, Keith Ellison, who's, uh, you know, the, the oh, yeah. chair of the of the party today. So and, and a regular on this show. Minnesota. I don't want them to think that I neglected them. But Lori asked a great question. And I think, uh, Lori and Tom and, and listeners, um, you know, uh, I think what Democrats failed to do in the last election was to speak to the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, something I feel very, very strongly about, and I, I've used the example of a, 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 a motor uh, company, a motor plant, uh, auto plant up in uh, Michigan that moved 10 hours away uh, to Tennessee, um, that when that person uh, who uh, has to make a decision as to whether they stay in their community or move to that other state to get, to keep, to get that job, uh, are probably paying, paying less wages uh, for it. Uh, maybe not a union job anymore, um, that it has incredible impact uh, on that family, the stress that it creates. I use the example of separating grandparents from grandchildren, for instance, and that's something we stopped talking about, the impact that that has on the, on the family structure itself. Uh, the, that family had been in that community, maybe, Lori, in, in your neighbor, in your community, has been there for generations and now has to decide whether they can still continue to live there, whether they have the schools like that can educate their children properly for the new economy. And so that's what Democrats need to continue to talk about. Understand first, we, we have to have solutions, but understand the problems that people are facing and the stress. And you've expressed that as well. Uh, what I would like to see in this, uh, in, in this uh, the, the, the better deal, better jobs, uh, better wages, better future that we're talking about as Democrats is the idea of a big infrastructure bill. I'm talking about you know, a, a Marshall Plan for the United States that will create uh, millions of new jobs that are high-paying jobs. You know, these are jobs, and I hope most of them are going to be union jobs, that are going to be building our infrastructure, reinvesting in America, that can be bridge jobs, not only building bridges, but building bridges to the future economy, ensuring that people can have a sustainable job that's a quality job that can uplift communities and towns like yours, Lori, can invest in making sure the schools are teaching their children, our children, for the new economy that we're going to be facing. And I think that's what's critical, certainly about what I think we need to do in terms of making the investment in America that we need to do to keep us number one, uh, but to also to provide those opportunities as generations did. You know, we, you, you, you know, I think, Tom, you've made reference to the fact that the New Deal, the better deal type of thing, that, that correlation, or maybe, or maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe John did in the previous call. Uh, and there's, there's no doubt that we're kind of making that link but think of the investments that were made during the Depression that, that Roosevelt did that really helped uh, give quality to people's lives and got us back on our feet. I think that's what Democrats are talking about today, and that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, and apropos of that infrastructure, I mean, when, when Eisenhower was building infrastructure, yep. every community that had a highway off-ramp suddenly yep. prospered. Yep. What if the, the new uh, superhighway system is the Internet? What about high-speed broadband as, as yep. part of that in- infrastructure? Absolutely. Access, equal access to broadband is what I'm talking about. I think Democrats are talking about as well. Building out that system uh, to go that extra mile when, when, when it's not profitable, we have to make it profitable. Uh, we have to make it uh, uh, mandatory that that build-out takes place, that every child, every family and every child uh, has access to, to broadband and to Internet access because that's the, that's the teaching tool of the future. Amen. It's a teaching tool of now, quite frankly. Amen. Congressman Joe Crowley, it's great talking with you. There's uh, people in South Carolina, Washington, Michigan, Vermont, Illinois, Washington, and California who are on hold, hoping they can talk to you. So come back again, please. I'd love to, Tom. I'll be back again, my friend. Congressman Crowley, thank you so much. All the best. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with me is Chief Clarence Cox, the incoming president of the Nationalist Organization for Black Law Enforcement, Noble a former chief of police of Clayton County, Georgia. NobleNational.org is the website, and you can tweet Chief Cox at Chief underscore Cox. Chief Clarence Cox, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us about your organization, uh, the National Organization for Black Law Enforcement, and and 
what you all are up to right now with regard to policing and the policing culture in this country? Well, obviously, we're one of the largest, if not the largest, um, black organization for law enforcement, and we founded in 1976. And we have uh, approximately 3,500 uh, members or so across the country, and that includes state, federal, county, and municipal agencies. Um, we do a lot in our communities, and especially uh, lately with some of the use of force issues, but we, one of the staple programs that we offer right now in our communities across the country is the Law in Your Community, where we engage with our uh, citizens and try to explain a little bit about what's going on in our country as it relates to law enforcement. Uh, there seems to be a divide, unfortunately, and a lot of it has to do with some of the things that you've seen, the large uh, incidents across the country. And we're working very hard and feverishly to try to change that optic and to educate our uh, public on some things that would be helpful in, in those encounters. Yeah. Now, in, in several of the fairly high-profile uh, killings of unarmed black people in the United States over the last few years, um, there have been officers of color involved. And uh, although it's, you know, by and large been, you know, white cops killing black civilians. But then we had the situation in, in Minneapolis uh, a couple of weeks ago with a, a black cop killing a white woman. And, and uh, a lot of the, the sturm and drang that seems to be coming out of that is that this isn't so much, although it, it very much is, but it's not so much a problem of uh, white policing against black people as it is that within police culture in the United States, and, and perhaps largely unique to the United States, this is not so much found as Michael Moore documented in his movie, Where to Invade Next?, uh, in, in European countries, there, there is this culture of, of violence itself, that, that it's not black or white, it's blue. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think, one, the thing that has changed the optics, if you will, is the advancement of technology. I would submit that some of these incidents have occurred over the years um, since uh, law enforcement's inception. And if you think about the many agencies across the country, and the percentage of these types of encounters, it's very little. It's not as much as people would tend to believe. It's just um, highly publicized now because of smartphones and other technology that's able to capture these events and make them look the way they do. And certainly we're not proud of some of the conduct um, some of the officers have displayed. And, um, you know, as you mentioned the thing in Minneapolis, um, we're not happy about that one either. Um, and until that's concluded or an investigation is, is, is completed, I won't make any comments personally or professionally on what I thought happened there. But certainly um, there needs to be an investigation. And I think uh, the mayor was in the right perspective to do some of the things that have already been done. The acting chief has instituted a policy that all officers will engage their body cameras uh, at the inception of the calls. I think that will be a little bit of a helpful measure. Um, but certainly, we've got a lot of work to do. And I think what has happened is we've dehumanized policing and police officers. Um, you know, as we talk about things like this, we talk about the fact that uh, these are happening in the communities. But if you think deeper in this, we are members of the community, and somehow somebody forgot about that. Somebody forgot that we are part of the community, and a lot of these issues um, hurt us as much as they hurt the, the public who screams and protests about it. Yeah. Um, we're just sworn to uphold the law, and, and we do, the, do, uh, do our best to make sure that that happens. But certainly we're not happy when we see um, incidents like this, whether they're white or black. Yeah. I have been saying, uh, you know, I'm, I have some, some general familiarity with, uh, uh, with law enforcement. I, I, uh, I was writing some novels about uh, private detectives and ended up going through the Georgia Police Academy. Uh, program back in 1998, I think it was, oh, okay. and and uh, one of, and my one of my best friends who got me into that program was a police chief, uh, uh, Dewitt Wanamaker. I don't know if you know him uh, from Georgia, rural Georgia, right? And um, uh, it and and I've had run-ins with the law in my life too, and I'll, you know, as as most people have, <laughs> and and it just. It, it strikes me, I, you know, what I've been saying for years, and particularly since that experience of going through the police academy, was that 
you know, our teachers hold our future in their hands and our cops hold our present, the quality of life of our present in their hands. And neither one of them are respected or paid enough, number one. And, number, and, and, and arguably, and particularly with regard to police, not so much teachers, they're not held accountable enough by the local communities. In fact, there's not even a mechanism for it in the case of police, or if, if there is, it, it doesn't seem to work all that well. Um, what are your thoughts on, on how policing in the United States can be reformed so it's less reactive and less, uh, you know, less violent and, um, and, and more, uh, you know, more community-centered, more, more uh, compassionate? It sounds like too, too weak a word, but uh, I think you know what I'm, what I'm trying to get yeah, to. I know exactly what you're saying, and I'm glad you brought that question into this interview. Um, one of the greatest tools that I've seen of late has been the task force, the 21st century policing task force that the former President Obama created, and that was to dive in to you know, some of these issues to find out what it is that is causing some of these uh, use of force issues, some of these mistrust um, problems that we have in the community. And I felt that that was probably the best tool that we've seen in the last century. And it has been since watered down a bit since the new administration has come into office. And some of the things that were put in place, like the Baltimore had some uh, federal mandates that were in place, and they've been since removed. I think we're going to go backwards in a sense until we actually demand that we have some sort of police reform. And certainly, um, you know, I agree with some of the points you bring out about the pay and, and the respect. But one of the first things that I was told when I was in the academy back in the early 80s was, if you came into this job to be rich, then you need to get up and leave the room. Yep. And so, you know, this is not a job that, you know, we're going to get paid a whole lot of money. And, and, and we most of us know that coming into this. So you either got to do it because something you love to do or you just can't find something else to do. We but it should be it should be a good job. I mean, in, in Norway, right. doctors make around one hundred twenty grand a year and right. so do cops. Right. But you, but you got to be a college graduate to be a police officer in Norway. I mean, why, why can't we raise standards and raise pay in this country? What's what's wrong with us that we can't do that? Well, it's it's sort of like uh, if you remember shortly after 9-11, the government put a lot of unfunded mandates onto local jurisdictions and they just soon went away because it was bankrupting uh, normal jurisdictions. And I, th I think when you start putting those mandates, if you don't put money toward those mandates, then they're just no good. They're not as good as the paper you should read them, wrote them on. Um, you know, so when we look at um, some of the things that people are asking for in the criminal justice system, you got to think cops are put in a position where they have to make decisions rapidly obviously. But we're also dealing with other things. We're dealing with mental health issues. We're dealing with, you know, anytime something's wrong in a household, the first thing the household owner or the, you know, whoever's in charge, they dial 911. And, you know, a lot of times those problems aren't something that's germane to a law enforcement issue, but they become a law enforcement issue because when we arrive, somebody expects us to do something. Well, and half the people in our prisons are mentally ill. Right. I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're dealing with a mental health crisis with and, guns. And it's you crazy. remember the early 80s with the war on drugs, that kind of went away. And now we're back almost in that same position with the uh, expansion of opioid drugs that are, right. you know, we're, we got a lot of um, prescription drugs that are hitting the streets and, and kind of overriding the illicit drugs, the methamphetamine, the cocaine and the things that you see. They're, they're being kind of outweighed by prescription drugs. So as we look at our future, we've got to put some, some, some things in place to try to combat a lot of the issues that are not necessary law enforcement. We've got to look at our entire criminal justice system. That's not something that a police officer on the street or uh, administrator of a police agency can, can change. It has to be a collective and, and involved um, effort to change this whole perspective of our justice system. Yeah. I, so, so very, very well said. Chief Clarence Cox, it has been a pleasure and an honor talking with you, sir, today. The uh, incoming president of the National Organization for Black Law Enforcement, noblenational.org is the website. You can tweet him at Chief underscore Cox. Chief Cox, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Tom. Glad I, to be here. I really appreciate it. Very thoughtful conversation. It's, it's, it's marvelous. And I wish you the very best in everything you're doing. 
Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between. Plus, the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.